Well, I invite you to turn with me or read on the screen Luke 11, beginning in verse 14. God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word tells us, Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest, and finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. As he, said to these, as he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. May God bless the reading and hearing of his holy word to us this morning. Citizenship has been a hot topic for the last few years. There's been a lot of debate about the rights of those who are illegal aliens in our country. There have also been problems with allowing or not allowing refugees into the country and other countries of the world as well. Who do we allow to become citizens and how difficult or not difficult that process should be are questions that have been asked and argued over recently and will continue to be debated, no doubt. Citizenship is very much front and center in the national conversation here and abroad. This past week I was listening to a radio program and the host was highlighting the difference between those who love America, who are proud to be Americans, they love the flag, relish the moments when America showed its greatness, and then there were those, he said, who shied away from that sort of patriotism. And then there were those who even went so far as to be outright ashamed of America, who always accused the ones who love America of being xenophobic. Well, it's not my purpose today to enter into these arguments, but I, I do want to talk to you about citizenship. Now, surely in these days when we've heard so much about what it means to be a citizen and what is a good citizen or a bad citizen. 
Surely in these days you have thought of the value of your citizenship. Your citizenship in America or the United Kingdom or Canada or Mexico or wherever you might be a, a citizen is certainly part of your identity to a larger or smaller degree based upon your, your own patriotism. How much you value your citizenship. Some people are more patriotic than others. But in the grand scheme of things, in the Christian understanding of the direction and end of history on this planet as we know it, our citizenship in a country is of much, much less importance than our citizenship in heaven. The Christian understanding is that all the kingdoms of this world will one day become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. And Paul made the point to the Philippians, chapter 3, verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Citizenship. Citizenship. That's what I want you to think about today. Are you a citizen of heaven? Are you a member of what the Bible synonymously calls the kingdom of God or the kingdom of Christ or the kingdom of heaven? They all refer to the same thing. If you are a member of his kingdom, a citizen of heaven, I want you to rejoice in that fact. I want, as we look at the passage today, to, to be reminded of that and to see the, the value of it and to be full of joy that you are a citizen of Christ's kingdom. I want you to value it as a great part, I mean, the greatest part of your identity, even greater than your earthly citizenship. Not that you're an American or whatever, but that you're a Christian, that you belong to Christ and you're a member of his kingdom. I want you to value that more from our reflection this morning. And I want you to also think about how can you be a better citizen of Christ's kingdom, a better citizen of heaven as we live as citizens of other nations on this earth. But if you're not a citizen of heaven or you're not sure that you're a citizen of the kingdom of God, I want to commend it to you today. Well, in the passage before us today, you should notice that Jesus is talking about his kingdom. And the reason that he is talking about his kingdom is that his kingdom is coming into conflict with the opposing kingdom in this world. Now let me explain what is meant by the concept of the kingdom of God and how it fits in with our understanding of the world. Well, the kingdom of God means the reign of God. King, Dom, from dominion, it's the area over which he reigns, the reign of God. When God created the world, mankind lived happily in this perfect world until Adam and Eve decided to rebel against the king, rebel against God. That rebelliousness, that rebellious nature was passed down to humanity. So we are all by nature rebels against God. The world is in chaos and in turmoil and decay as a result because it has rebelled against him. And men and women are in their present trouble and distress because they live in rebellion. They are rebels and they're reaping the fruits of their evil deeds. And God is pouring out his punishment down upon them. 
Sometimes that punishment is merely him turning them over to more and more sin, to be more entangled in it. As long as people turn their backs upon God, live in rebellion against God, their trouble will increase. The world has come under the rule of Satan. In several places in the New Testament, Satan is called the ruler of this world. Ephesians 2 says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So no one is an exception to this state of rebellion against God. That's the world in which we live. But when Jesus was born, a new ruler, a new kingdom, the kingdom of God, burst onto the scene. When Jesus began his public ministry, he said, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The king was arriving, instituting his kingdom. He ushered in a kingdom of righteousness and peace and love and blessing and grace and God's favor. And his kingdom is in direct conflict with the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of evil and rebellion against God. And that's what's going on in this passage before us. Jesus casts out a demon. He frees a man from his bondage and oppression to evil. In Luke 4, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he was in the synagogue and he picks up the scroll from the book of Isaiah and he reads a prophecy concerning himself. He read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed like this man, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. There's a new king in town, and Jesus demonstrated it by healing the sick and the blind and the lame, by stilling the storm and walking upon the water, by raising the dead and forgiving sins, and by casting out demons numerous times in his ministry. In verse 14, we see a conflict between Jesus' kingdom and the kingdom of evil. But there's another front to this conflict. In verse 15, we see that, yes, evil can take the form of demonic oppression. In verse 15, we see that evil can also take the form of religion. Verse 15 says, Some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Matthew's account of this miracle tells us that the people who were saying this, who were accusing Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Satan, were the Pharisees. They were engaging in what we would call today a disinformation campaign. They were slandering Jesus. Many of the Pharisees and the other religious leaders of the day hated and opposed Jesus. Why would the religious people oppose Jesus? Well, the Pharisees were a Jewish sect that exercised strict piety according to Mosaic law. 
The origin of the term Pharisee comes from an Aramaic word, which means to separate, divide, or distinguish. The Pharisees separated themselves. They distinguished themselves both socially and theologically from people who were worldly, people who embraced the ways of the Romans and the Greeks, and people who were uneducated commoners. They sat upon their, uh, their religious thrones, as it were, and they didn't touch the unclean out there, as we've seen many times in Luke. Many of them had risen to positions of power within the religious establishment of the day. And their true heart is revealed as they continued in their opposition to Jesus. John eleven forty five through 48, after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, some people come to the Pharisees and they say to the Pharisees, look, this is what Jesus has done. He's raised Lazarus from the dead. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, Everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nations. And that's when they started plotting on how they could kill Jesus. Look how Jesus characterized them down in verse 39. The Lord said to him, to this Pharisee whom he, with whom he was eating, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who make the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seed in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. They're like big holes in the grounds, and people fall in. They're, they're like a trap, leading people astray and destroying people. And then he goes on, verse 45 and 46 talking about the lawyers, the experts in the law. Some of them were in the same camp with the Pharisees. Verse 46, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Reminds me of a story someone told me one time. Uh, this, this young man was at a church, and the pastor was always telling the people in the congregation that they should live simply and that they should not have televisions, that they should sell their televisions, get rid of their televisions. Well, he eventually went to the pastor's house and it was opulent. And he had the biggest television screen on his wall that you've ever seen. Hypocrisy. You load people with burdens hard to bear and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. He says, 52, you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. These people used religion as simply a way to control and oppress people, much like the demon had possessed the man and oppressed the man and rendered him mute. They did not bring freedom with their religion, with their rules. They brought oppression. They brought bondage. And this is the point that Jesus is making in verse 24. 
When the unclean spirit had gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and finding none. It says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. This is a picture of someone who's engaged in moral reform. They have cleaned up their act, but it only lasts a short time. It's really not enacting lasting change. It has no power to change. They actually end up worse off. Evil is not at all defeated by moral reform and willpower to do good. Many people think that's what we're teaching in, in the church. That what we're saying is, come and, and be moral, be good. Well, that's not the gospel. Jesus is different. When they accuse him of casting out demons by the power of Satan, Beelzebul is another name for Satan, he points out the logical fallacy of their, of their statement, of their accusation. Why would Satan work against himself? Why would Satan cast out Satan? That makes no sense at all. And of course, the, the famous saying, a kingdom divided against itself will fall. Then he points out their inconsistency and prejudice in verse 19. If I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. Why, when I cast out demons, it's by the power of Satan, and when your guys cast out demons, it's all good. Notice that Jesus does not deny that they had exorcists, exorcists that were successful for a time. But Jesus is different. Look at verse 20. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. This phrase, finger of God, is used only three other times in Scripture. And the most important one is in Exodus 8:19. Moses appears before Pharaoh, and he has a couple of signs that he shows to show the power of God and that God is with him. Aaron throws down his staff and it becomes a serpent, but the Egyptian magicians are able to do the same trick and they throw their staffs down and they also become serpents. And then Aaron's serpents eat their serpent. And when Moses enacted the first plague, he turned the water of the Nile to blood. The magicians were also able to duplicate that act by their magic arts. And the second plague, they were also able to du duplicate the plague of frogs. However, they could not duplicate the third plague, the plague of gnats. And that's where Exodus 8:19 says that the magicians, when they saw this plague of gnats and they could not duplicate it, they said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. This is beyond our capability. This is something divine. This is something powerful. Yes, the Jewish exorcists of Jesus' day could do some things, but they could not enact real change, real freedom, real deliverance. Only Jesus could do that because he, could do, he did it by the finger of God. 
This is the mark of his kingdom, he says. It's a true and complete victory over evil. Jesus is the stronger man of verse 21 and 22. He says, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. I like what John Calvin says about this. He says, Christ attacked Satan in open combat, threw him down, and left him nothing remaining. He did not lay him low in one respect, that he might give him greater stability in another, but stripped him completely of all his armor. A complete and total victory by the King of kings and Lord of lords, to which every knee shall bow. The question is, will it be willingly or unwillingly? Which side are you on? Jesus says in verse 23, Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Are you with him? Are you a citizen of his kingdom? If not, why not? Is it because you, you want to be king of your own life, and you're unwilling to abdicate as king? If so, you're living in bondage to sin, and you don't seem to realize it. By not coming to Christ, you're passing up true freedom and love and mercy and grace and acceptance with God and, and all the other spiritual blessings in the heavenly places that citizens of His kingdom enjoy. Consider giving Jesus the throne of your life. This is not like the Jewish exorcists, limited power, just calling you to, to change and, and to do better and to act nice and to... To be moral. No, this is coming to Jesus and putting your life in His hands so that His power can truly change you from the inside out, not just on the outside, but a, a total transformation by the finger of God. So if you're not a citizen of His kingdom, or if you don't know, consider Christ. Consider His power. If you are a citizen of God's kingdom this morning, rejoice in your strong, victorious king. He has conquered all his and our enemies. The world, the flesh, the devil, even death itself. We have nothing to fear. He has freed us from the guilt of our sin and rebellion. He has delivered us from the power that sin has in our lives. And when he returns and brings in the fullness of his kingdom, he will free us from the very presence of sin. If you are a citizen of God's kingdom, reflect on how you can be a better citizen of his kingdom this morning. Now during this coronavirus crisis, we have all had to do things to be good citizens. The government has asked things of us. And we've had to ask ourselves, how can we best care for one another in our state, in our country? And we're making sacrifices for the good of our, of our city, of our state, of our country. Well, let's ask the same thing about being a citizen of heaven. How can we be a better citizen of heaven? 
How can we better serve heaven and our King? What sacrifices does Christ call us to make? And what can we do as citizens of Christ's kingdom to better represent Christ's kingdom while we live in earthly kingdoms? We have a dual citizenship. We are, yes, maybe citizens of America, but more importantly, we're citizens of heaven. We're living in America. How can our citizenship in heaven, how does that have an impact on the way that we live as citizens of the United States or of Britain or Canada or Mexico or wherever it is where our citizenship might be? What can we do better to represent Christ's kingdom while we live in the earthly kingdoms? This crisis is a, is a great moment to be able to, to think about that and to love our neighbor as ourself in various ways. The church is here to love you in this crisis, to represent Christ's kingdom on earth. Well, the last thing that we read here in this passage is this woman who raises her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. And of course, that's true. Mary is blessed, as we looked at in uh, the beginning of Luke. But he said, more importantly, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Now you might could read this as exactly what the Pharisees were trying to teach. Well, keep God's word. Do this, do that, do that. That's not what Jesus means there. Most importantly, he's talking about the gospel. I like the way the Gospel Transformation Bible explains this. It says there, in a way consistent with the whole Bible's message... Jesus defines true blessedness as hearing and keeping the Word of God. This definition involves a gospel ordering that cannot be reversed. The gospel is not a call to perform in order to get God's favor. Rather, it is a call first to hear, to receive the message of God's kindness and love, and then to be transformed by the Spirit's work the finger of God. In Matthew's, trans, in Matthew's version of the, the, uh, his account of this miracle, he has Jesus say he does it by the Spirit of God, not the finger of God. It's synonymous. We are transformed by the Spirit's work. That's the finger of God in our lives. The Bible goes on. From this basis, and constantly buoyed by grace... We strive to follow after Jesus in keeping the word. That is, we persevere in the faith. Well, as citizens of Christ's kingdom, may we persevere in the faith. May we continuously put our trust in our King, our victorious King of kings and Lord of lords. Let us pray together. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, Again, we thank you for your grace and your love. Thank you, Lord, that you have sent a Savior, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Thank you, Lord, that you have freed us from the guilt of sin and our bondage to sin. And you will free us from even the presence of sin and all the consequences of sin. Thank you, Lord. We pray that we would truly value being citizens of your kingdom. We pray, Lord, that that would be uh, 
uh, one of the chief ways that we identify ourselves, the way that we think about ourselves and who we are. And Lord, I pray for those who, who are not citizens of your kingdom, that you would draw them to yourself. Help them to see the, the value of, of Christ as king and, and what he's accomplished on their behalf. Redemption, salvation, and entrance into your family. And, and all the love and the spiritual blessings that flow to us from you. Lord, we give you great thanks and praise for your infinite mercy. Lord, may it impact our lives and, and may that same mercy and love that we experience flow out of us to others, especially during this time of crisis. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.